The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As some of you may know, there has been a slight delay in getting this episode out, which was due to the unfortunate demise of the main PC which I use for pretty much all of my audio recording and editing. This has needed to be replaced in order to be able to continue making episodes of the podcast, and this replacement has happened purely thanks to the generosity of those of you who support the podcast on Patreon. The funds from this support, with the agreement of the Patreon supporters, have been used to get things going again, and it is thanks to the Patreon supporters that this and future episodes are coming out now. So, from me, and I'm sure from all of you who enjoy listening to the Folklore Podcast, a sincere thanks to the Patreon supporters. If you want to join them and help to keep the podcast viable, in return for extra content and rewards, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Your support is, as this example has proven, essential. Thank you. Since the last episode, the Folklore Podcast Big Record has also gone live. Now, this is a new initiative to encourage the recording of folklore in your community. The aim is to capture many of our traditional stories, beliefs, and ideas before they're lost forever. So, if you fancy getting out and sitting down to chat with some people in your community about the things that they remember, and record their responses for the project, then please email the Folklore Podcast at gmail.com, and I'll send you an information pack. The project is very simple to take part in. You can audio record on a phone or other device, and simply send in the recordings with a simple sheet of details. If you don't want to conduct interviews but want to help in other ways, then you could volunteer to listen to and transcribe some of the recordings as they come in. Again, please email for more details. 
Joining me on this episode of the Folklore Podcast is I.C. Sedgwick. I.C. is a fiction writer and film academic from the north-east of England. She's a regular folklore blogger and can often be seen participating in Folklore Thursday on Twitter or Folk Horror Revival on Facebook. Academically, I.C. has a particular interest in horror cinema, and her PhD is looking at how filmmakers use set design, cinematography and sound to represent hauntings. It's this area which we will be particularly focusing on, as well as the role of the house itself in ghost films. Hello, Icy, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hello, it's great to be here. Welcome, it's nice to have you on here. Now, before we start i just wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that there are really two sides i guess to your character if you like there's your academic side which we'll talk a little bit more about later on um and then there is your fiction writing and your blogging and your other work now in the um social media tease that i put out for this episode i um if i remember rightly described you as a stalwart of folklore thursday and indeed other places on social media too, with with some excellent contributions. So can you tell everybody a little bit about how you became interested in folklore and the gothic and the supernatural, um, and how that informs your fiction writing and your other blogging in that way? I think, um, oh God, trying to think where I first became interested. Um, We used to visit a lot of stately homes and castles and things when I was little, and if they had a book of ghost stories, you could guarantee that I would be getting that. And um, they're often just like little sort of photocopied pamphlets stapled together. Um, so I was always fascinated by ghost stories in particular. Um, and obviously up here in the northeast, you know, we've got ghosts and goblins and wizards and whatnot coming out what it is, really. Um, and then I moved to London, which was, you know, obviously even more filled with folklore and ghost stories and all kinds of weirdness. Um, and that's just the night boss. And then um, <laughs> I suppose um, I discovered Twitter. Um, and then, yeah, I suddenly noticed this hashtag folklore Thursday. And I was like, oh, what's all that about then? Um, had a look at it. It was like, this is, these are my kind of people. This is my kind of stuff. And then um, started contributing. And it was actually for Folklore Thursday that I actually started blogging about folklore. Because um, obviously I had all these stories that I already knew. And it was an excuse to go and find something new out. And I'm the kind of person where if there's a, a, an opportunity to learn something new, then I'm sort of front of the queue. Um, I'm like the Lisa Simpson of folklore. <laughs> uh, and, uh, in terms of how it influences my own fiction, I mean... I've never been interested in writing about anything realistic. Um, And I think current events prove that, you know, truth really is stranger than fiction anyway. Um, So, so yes, obviously when I started writing stories, oh God, years and years ago now, um, there were usually some kind of um, ghost story or um, sort of fantastical in some way. Um, and then when I started actually submitting things for publication, particularly short stories, it was a lot easier to find magazines that accepted horror, sci-fi and fantasy. Um, so it was easier to send things to them and so on. Uh, so it's just a little bit of a shame that my first published book was a Western, but, you know, these things happen. 
I'm sure nobody will hold that against you. You'll be fine. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I think Folklore Thursday uh, has been uh, one of the things that has been most responsible, uh, along with perhaps folk horror revival uh, for for the kind of more gothic and supernatural side, but the, but the kind of resurgence that we've seen of this interest in folklore in the last few years. I mean, I I certainly have contributed and and been a part of folklore thursday on and off since since the very beginning and i think the the rate at which that grew was fascinating to watch and it it showed that um and i know we're going to talk about your academic side in a moment but i think from the non-academic or more layperson side things like folklore thursday folklore revival have have really brought about this resurgence in not only reading about and, and finding out about folklore but being more actively involved in it do you think I think so. I mean, I, I still love it every Thursday. There's at least one person like, oh, my God, how did I not know that this hashtag was a thing? <laughs> um, so you're like, come in, join the family. And um, I, I absolutely love that. And um, I was on because everyone always complains about how Twitter is really mean and it's nasty and it's just full of trolls and everything. Um, I suppose we've got literal trolls in our little <laughs> corner of the Internet. And, and I always sort of think, oh, no, Folklore Thursday, it's kind of like just being in a big group hug for a few hours. It um, really is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think it's always a shame when you get that distinction between, oh, are you, are you an academic folklorist or are you an amateur? And you sort of think, well, the Olympics is supposed to be for amateurs, so <laughs> what's yeah. your point? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I find that tedious. I, I'm a hundred percent behind you on that, and, and people who followed some of my bits of writing and and um, and other research will will know that it is one thing that I I mention on more than one occasion is is this insistence that if you're not in a red brick university or, or working on some kind of um, academic research project like that, then you are an amateur folklorist um i i'm more of an advocate for independent folklorist or something like that as as a term mm. because if you look back in the annals of the folklore society for example which is the united kingdom's longest standing you know academic uh, society that is purely looking at folklore as a discipline the majority of the folklore that was collected that came through the Folklore Society in in the early to mid part of the 20th century, at least, and maybe even later than that, was not collected by people in academic institutions. It was collected by independent researchers, independent folklorists. Yeah, so I think, you know, really it's... Oh, I don't want to say it's by the people, for the people, because that sounds a little bit too political party-esque for my liking, but, you know, considering it is the law of you know, the folk, as it were, you sort of think, why do you want to start putting boundaries in on mm. who's legitimately allowed to write about it and who's not? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So on that note, we're going to spend the rest of this interview discussing your academic work. So that leads Yay. in really nicely, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, fascinating subject that you're looking at in your PhD research. In a nutshell... Um, I'm looking at haunted house films, um, particularly since 1978. And there is a reason why I've got that particular year in there. It's not just random. Um, but what I'm specifically looking at, because everyone who studies horror or film in general can often 
delve so far into theory um, that they almost seem to, I don't want to say it's kind of going to upset people, but they almost seem to kind of stop looking at cinema as an actual technical medium. Um, so I want to have a look at how things like sound, set design and cinematography actually impact on how these hauntings are represented on screen. Um, because, you know, when you think of something like The Shining, you can't not think of the design. Um, that film would not have worked without a lot of it, the visuals. And while, yes, Kubrick's, you know, got a lot to do with that, there's also this whole other team of wonderful people who've, you know, contributed to that. Um, so that's basically what I'm looking at is those three areas and how you then get things like hauntings represented, Freud's theory of the uncannies in there. Uh, and then obviously I'm also looking at how these things impact on the Gothic. Okay, so let, let's look at... Um ghost stories as a as a genre then i mean ghost stories have been popular for hundreds of years before that well before the advent of cinema you know when you you go back to shakespeare and and earlier um and winter's tale and look at this kind of emergence of the ghost story as a theme uh and then through victorian times and and the popular popularity of mr james and charles dickens and telling ghost stories at christmas and so on so how does the representation of ghosts in the media in which you're working in cinema fit into this whole genre um, here in the UK, abroad, wherever you look at these stories? Well, I think it's quite fascinating because, and I'd highly recommend if anyone wanted some light bedtime reading on this, um, Owen Davies, who I'm such a fangirl for, has um, a book called The Haunted, and I think the subtitle is The Social History of Ghosts. So he traces... um, types of ghost stories and it's fascinating how um sort of like back in the day you know like you could legitimately have people running around the streets in a white sheet pretending to be ghosts and people were okay with that um and i think there was a much wider popular acceptance of the supernatural as being an actual thing so to the extent when you look at the um oh i forgot the name of the woman that um is it the corda murders in the barn um where um, a, a woman's a, a, a woman's daughter is apparently murdered, or stepdaughter, um, and she starts claiming to have visions of the of what's happened to her in dreams and things, and that was accepted. If you try to do that now, um, you know you'd be laughed off the BBC. So it's fascinating how ghosts have kind of disappeared into cinema because you can't really talk about them in polite society. I, mean, I know there's entire TV channels dedicated to it now, but um, but it's fascinating because obviously when you look at horror cinema, um, you know, the ghosts were, if you look at like the 1930s, the ghosts were almost there as like a comedy device. If I'm thinking of a film like The Ghost Goes West, for example, um, they're just almost there as a gimmick to sell a plot. Um, and then you move forward to The Haunting and you never see the ghost at any point. Um, and then they kind of disappear for a while. Um, I suspect because zombies have just become a thing by 1968 and then they reappear again in Poltergeist and you know they really take sort of what's the take advantage of all the special effects that are on offer and I think it's almost like they've been waiting for cinema to catch up with them yes yeah Um, and and that's where I think that my favorite example of the genre ever is the others um, with Nicole Kidman because I think the way that it represented um, ghosts was just so unusual 
um, and probably fitted in more to the, the lineage that you get if you look at the actual history of ghost stories in, in reality. Yeah, do you, do you think that um, relying on the special effects that we have now in cinema it almost, um, if you're not careful, turns it full circle and brings them back to being a comic device again? I'm just thinking of, of things like The Haunting being such an effective film through the fact that you don't actually see the ghost portrayed at all. I think so. Funnily enough, I've literally just written a chapter on uh, special effects in haunted house films, so this is quite fresh in my mind. But if you look at the god-awful remake of The Haunting in 1999, it's just this absolute firework of special effects. But if you're going to let Jan de Bont do a haunted house film, I don't quite know what else you'd expect. Um, And, you know, you've got all sorts of things like carvings in the wall coming to life and faces appearing and frost on windows, and it's just all very silly. Mm. Um, And it feels very much more like the fairground to the kind of thing you'd see in Disney's Haunted Mansion or something. Yes, yes. Um, and you kind of, you can really feel the presence of Georges Millet's and all of his trick films um, of the early days of cinema in those films. But then when you actually look at the number of haunted house films or ghost films that there have actually been, it's amazing how few of them have actually used special effects. So some of them, like the Poltergeist remake, um, did, did go down that route and did use a lot more CGI than they possibly should have done. But then if you look at someone like James Wan, he just clags his uh, actors in makeup and has real people playing the ghosts instead, which has a completely different effect on how they're represented. So it is interesting that you would assume that filmmakers would just do CGI extravaganzas, but actually uh, Guillermo del Toro is a good example here. They just use CGI to augment what they've already got on screen. Uh, so you do get a sense of the, the supernatural through the way that they use the effects rather than it just looking incredibly silly and again i'm thinking of the uh, house on haunted hill remake here the ghosts and that are just appalling but that's what you get with the film in 1999 when someone's exploring what the technology can actually do yes yeah absolutely um i i i I agree i i think that they're often far more effective from what you don't see than what you do there are are interesting parallels i guess as well with things like you know you're talking about um appalling ghosts your ghost programs on television. Um, I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to. I'm not going to name any one program, but you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, and you compare that to to what was actually a really effective movie with the first Paranormal Activity, mm. where where you see very little, um, but the representation of a haunting or a haunted house, if you like, in that actually works really well. Yeah, and I think the. I think the the Paranormal Activity franchise is an interesting one because it's an example of where they... I mean, it irritated me somewhat that they were calling it paranormal and it wasn't. It was demonic and you think there's a difference, but, you know, Hollywood. Uh, The thing with Paranormal Activity is it then created its own mythos and its own folklore around who this figure was and how it related to the family in question and how it then almost infects the society around it rather than some of the other films, um, like The Conjuring, which is quite a... I know they've, they've branched out into films about the nun and whatnot now, but it's largely a self-contained film, whereas the Paranormal Activity one seems to have almost taken on a life of its own. 
Yeah, uh, I, I guess one of the problems with the with a franchise like the, the Conjuring is that it, it then starts to use, and again, this is something that we've discussed before, that people have a big problem with the kind of based on a true story introduction yeah. to cinema, you know, and the the any resemblance to the Enfield poltergeist case is probably purely coincidental, I think, in The Conjuring 2. Well, the prob- the pro- well, one of many problems I had with The Conjuring 2 here was the fact that Sky had their version with the incomparable Timothy Spall in it on at mm. the same time, which was infinitely superior. But then, secondly, it was the fact that they'd almost forgotten that it was a film about the Enfield poltergeist and made it all about the Warrens. Yes. So they fell into that trap of, yes, we have to get this demonic nun in there. And I'm like, but everything else is so much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that was... And now they're doing Amityville again for the third one. Mm. It's how how far can you flog that dead horse? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I guess... I mean, the Enfield case is, is something that probably, because of the folklore elements that surround it, is something that mm-hmm. I maybe ought to discuss in the future as well on, on the podcast. Certainly, um, I mean, I spoke to both Morris Gross and Guy Playfair before they passed away, um, and Guy Playfair sent me some of his recordings from the Enfield case to listen to, actually, which which are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um and Sky did a pretty good job, but again, there was this insistence on having to put extra material that was not actually part of the case in to make it more Hollywood. Uh, the case itself is interesting enough that you don't need to do that. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, obviously people are going to come to a, a programme or an adaptation like that with a certain set of expectations. So on one hand, it's it's irritating if, if you're more informed shall we say but then if you've never come across it before you'd probably rather encounter it through the sky version than the conjuring yeah yeah, uh, yeah. but then it's quite an interesting counterpoint when you look at the the film they did of the pontifract one the black mm-hmm. monk of pontifract yeah uh when the lights go out so it was very similar in a lot of ways to what they did with the enfield haunting but obviously because it's a uh I think it's quite a low-budget British film, that one. The, it almost felt like they were trying to be more realistic and more true to the original story, but in a way it kind of seemed to lose some of its punch as a result. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably fair to say. So let, let's um, have a think then about this, this idea of um, the folkloric element of these films if we can there i mean you've already said about like paranormal activity creating its own folklore its own Mm. mythos for example um but when when you look at older folklore records to do with hauntings and ghosts and i'm thinking i guess as much about um the idea of the folk ghost rather than the actual haunting so legendary examples um, there, there are very definite tropes within folklore associated with ghosts, you know, how to dispatch a ghost, how to lay a ghost, the, these kinds of things. Do these feature in horror cinema that you've been looking at, these kind of purer folkloric elements? Um, I, I actually would probably, at first sort of glance, probably say no, uh, particularly with the 
it, it generally around the idea of the cemetery. For some reason, Hollywood keeps insisting on cemeteries being somewhere that's quite creepy, which doesn't make sense because you think, well, the whole point was whoever was buried there first was set to guard the place. Yes. But they should actually be quite protected places. And I can't think of anyone who, who, you know, past the point of departure would then be like, I'm just going to hang around in this graveyard for the rest of eternity. So you think, in all, in all honesty, that's going to be the least problematic place to be. Obviously, I've no idea what you... I've, you don't come across in folklore things like the idea of building on a cemetery. That's obviously, you know, fairly unprecedented, mm-hmm. you know, which is why Poltergeist played with it. But I think the... The idea about laying ghosts, it nearly always, from the examples I've come across, it nearly always comes down to, oh, we've got to get the ashes to consecrated ground, which is what they're doing, they'll try to do in the Frighteners, um, or calling in a priest to sort the problem out. Uh, when you think, you tried asking the ghost what they want. And that's the other thing that you get quite a lot of, this idea of the ghost trying to communicate to pass on a message. Uh, so when you look at some of the really older sort of ghost stories, the idea that somebody could come back after they'd been murdered and then point out the murderer, um, that does reappear in some... I mean, The Sixth Sense made an entire film out of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as did Stir of Echoes. And I think those ones are the ones that are often a little bit more successful. And I wonder if it's because they're based on that older idea or it's a more recognisable concept, perhaps, that somebody's, you know, that are done quite spirit because, you know, they've maybe they've got unfinished business, which was the one in Ghost, or the fact that they want to see justice done. I think th- those two elements of the the older Ghost story do seem to still appear. So, thinking about how this works in reverse, then, and how the films are creating their own folklore, you gave Paranormal Activity as an example a little bit earlier on. Um, have you got any other examples of how that comes about and? And whether these created elements of folklore then tie in with existing elements of folklore or whether the two have to be quite disparate. I think the other one that springs to mind uh, immediately would be Ouija, which I just found that hilarious. It's like, what other board games are they going to make films about? Because you already had Battleship. With that one, um, I think my problem with it... Well, Again, there's many problems that anyone could have with it, but they rewrote the rules about how you actually use the Ouija board, and they then you obviously use that for dramatic effects. So clearly, they're going to take artistic license with it. But I did then hear after the film had come out, I did hear people repeating that as if that was actually how to use a Ouija board. Now I used to do ghost hunts as part of a, um, a paranormal investigation thing when I first moved back to Newcastle and we use Ouija boards all the time and I can honestly say as far as I know nothing ever followed me home we didn't open any portals to hell Uh although there are certain parts of town you wouldn't really notice (laughs) and you think it's 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 then irritating when you hear people sort of repeating these things that they've heard in a film because the film's taken such license with I mean, obviously, I suppose a Ouija board is not really old enough to necessarily have any folklore, but you know what I mean? It's just this concept of, oh, we've made our own set of rules about how this thing works. And I think that uh, it's not as problematic. It just it does demonstrate how easily things kind of become more urban legend, I think, than folklore. Yes, yeah. 
Uh, and urban legends probably another example actually of, of a kind of um a movie franchise that that's drawing on existing folklore quite heavily as well now you yeah and i think that was what was quite interesting i think it was in paranormal activity three the bit where you see a bloody mary in the mirror yeah and just so appear they, they only use that once and it's in the trailer they don't yes. even use it in the main film no it's not so in the film at all yeah and it's the best part <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it was quite interesting that they obviously want, and I, I wonder, are they trying to legitimise what they're doing by referencing these popular urban legends or well-known snippets of folklore? Do they then become selling points or is it just sort of coincidental? Yeah, because I, I spent the whole of Paranormal Activity 3 waiting for that whole concept to happen. Uh, which, of course, it never did. And ultimately, that was a bit of a disappointment because it looked so good in the trailer. <laughs> Yeah, they just completely avoided using it, which is why. <laughs> yeah, which is strange. So, so thinking about that, and uh, um, when when we were arranging this interview as well, you you mentioned Slender Man as another example, of course, which 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 we've covered before on the podcast right at the beginning, and is a, an old favourite. Um, if films are using these ideas. Uh, are they then using them to good effect or are they becoming detrimental to the film as a whole because of what people think about them for? You know, and Bloody Mary is an old folkloric concept, really. Slender Man is a very recently created concept. I think it depends on the way that it's done because I think something like Slender Man would have made sense if they'd made the film maybe two or three years ago. Whereas for it to come out in 2018, it sort of felt a bit like it, it missed the boat somewhat. So it felt like it was kind of tapping into that folkloric element, um, obviously, in the resurgence that has gone on. But then when you look at sort of some of the other films, I'm, I'm even thinking of something like The Blair Witch Project, actually, way back in, was it, what, 99? The fact that they ended up creating their own mythos around the film to the extent that so many people went to see the site because they believed it was real that they could then make the second film about that yes yeah which i think is it's so self-referential but you know the epitome of postmodernism really but it was quite cool that they'd successfully convinced everybody this was real uh, which i don't think would have worked after the invention of social media in all honesty because uh, you know, people will be putting spoilers on Twitter and whatnot. But I think when you do get some of the, the the characters like Bloody Mary, sometimes for me it feels a little bit like they're just shoehorning these characters in um, as almost like a who's who. Uh, a bit like when Universal decided to resurrect you know, like the Monsters universe, it kind of almost felt like they were just cashing in. Yeah, yeah. I guess the the Blair Witch Project is interesting because I think it just fell at the right time, as you say, before the advent of social media, so it could enjoy the hype without enjoying the spoilers. Um, but it's an interesting example because it creates its own mythos uh, around a film which essentially is based on an existing story anyway of you know with the bell witch and and draws very heavily on that so it almost doesn't need to create its own mythos because there's one there already um and it's hugely successful whereas the last broadcast which is quite a similar film and probably better in many ways is kind of not much remembered now which one's the last broadcast? I feel like I've seen that one. Uh, I I have vague recollections, but I think if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's based on the Jersey Devil story. 
I can't remember because I know I've definitely seen one where some where is a guy about a guy who purports to be an exorcist, but then he he decides to. I, I might be thinking of completely the wrong film. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of films about exorcisms. Yeah, exorcisms are very. I mean, the Exorcist aside, as as being the kind of you know most thought of example, there are a lot of other exorcism films which have done pretty well. I think, aren't there? Yeah, and I think I, I I do get quite frustrated when I go to see a film that is supposed to be about ghosts and hauntings, and then they go, they might even say, oh, it's a poltergeist, and then at some point it's like, yeah, no, it's demons. I'm always like, oh, really? <laughs> you were doing so well up until that point. <laughs> I think people... I want to make a proper honest to God haunted house film. <laughs> yeah, people are very happy to kind of just lump the two concepts together, aren't they? Of, of the kind of the paranormal haunted house element and the whole demonic possession thing as as being one genre, where in fact I guess they're not really at all. Yeah, I mean, I see that. I mean, if you think about ghosts, I mean, there's a, oh, which one of the Plinies? I think it's Pliny the Younger wrote what's believed to be one of the first ghost stories. So you think so? They're that tradition goes back literally centuries. So you think so the ghost story itself to me has like more of a a traditional lineage, whereas demonic possession and exorcisms and so on, you sort of think, well you you're then getting into slightly dodgy territory of of bringing religious thought and whatnot into what doesn't necessarily need to be. Yeah. I, 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 I just wish that they'd sort of separate the two a little bit more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, I, which, I've... sorry, go on. Which one of the cool things about the J horror boom? Um, because all of a sudden you got actual ghosts again. Yes. And it was like, yay! <laughs> can we have a few? Obviously, because that's drawn on you know Japanese narrative traditions and so on. So it's can we have a few more like this, please? Yeah, because that that is the more. I mean, Japanese folklore around ghosts is very strong, and and that mm. is, that is yeah more what you're looking at, isn't it? In fact, I'm, I've I've just written a chapter recently for a forthcoming book on um folk ghosts uh and mm-hmm. that and that greek example of, of kind of the earliest recorded haunting rather than ghost story which, which is kind of a more more of a, a a folk ghost than anything else does provide that lineage right through you're absolutely right i, I just think that really this is where when you've got such a rich lineage why do you need to invent new Full yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let, let's just think a little bit about um, the the role of the house then. Um, you know, there are lots of these uh, folklore elements around the ghosts themselves, I guess. You know, we can talk about paranormal activity and, and Bloody Mary and Slenderman and those sorts of things. But one thing that you're looking at particularly is how the house itself as a piece of set design as well as the way it's portrayed through through the imagery and through the audio um informs these um movies so just talk a little bit about about how that comes across it it's sort of it's often sort of so subtle that until somebody points it out you don't necessarily notice um but for example I mean, Poltergeist is a very, you know, probably the example most people would think of. And it's got all these ideas. If you look at the original, you know, that it's this brand new housing estate. So it's a brand new start for this family. The father's even an estate agent. So he's actually involved in the buying and selling of houses. They've moved into the very first house on the development. 
the uh, and they, they're obviously affluent enough that uh, oh, what's her name, Diane? The wife doesn't actually need to go to work because she's at home all day. And for her, the sudden supernatural instances are, are like you know things like the the or the chairs being piled up on the kitchen table, or when she's sort of pushed across the kitchen floor, it becomes almost a game to her, and it's a point of fun for her and Carolyn or Caroline, sorry, to actually interact with the ghosts, which is quite unusual. But then if you look at, by the time you get to the, the remake, uh, the house is smaller. They've only been able to buy it because the oh, the previous owner foreclosed on it. So they've brought the financial crash of 2008 into it. And then they've got all this uh, stuff about the house being right next to electricity pylons, as if that's somehow to blame, which doesn't really work when you consider the general concept behind Polygast. But it was a nice idea that they tried to do something a bit more unusual. So you've got all these electronic disturbances as well, which means that they don't notice the supernatural problems until they really get to fever pitch because they think it's just electrical glitches. But the house itself, they're often really, really, really mundane to the point that you don't even really notice the set design until things kick off. And then you have things like, obviously, the closet becomes really important. There's usually something in the basement that you should probably leave alone. That's quite a trope. Or someone's buried in the basement, one or the other. And I think, for me, the the best example of all of them is actually Monster House, the animated one, uh, where the house is literally haunted and literally comes to life. It's just an absolutely brilliant film. <laughs> See, all I've got in my mind when you talk about that is really the opening titles to Scooby-Doo from the 1960s. <laughs> yeah. That's the epitome of a haunted it, house coming to life. Yeah, and I think it, it one of the reasons why houses are always so scary where ghosts are concerned is the fact that it's, you know, it's your house. That's where you go to get away from the scary stuff that's in the world. So if it's then also in your house, where else do you go? And that was where the grudge took it even further again, where sort of the woman gets under a duvet because, you know, you hide under the duvet from the monsters and lo and behold, the monster's under there with her. Uh, I mean, I was in bed as I was watching that film, so you can, get, you, can you know, imagine how pleased I was with that scene. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it was nothing compared to when I watched The Ring and it was a copied DVD as well. And then the minute the film finished, the phone rang and I was like, yeah, kidding. This, <laughs> this can't be happening. Um and it was, I think it was just a wrong number. I hope it was just a wrong number. But the um, the house itself, I think, is it, such an interesting metaphor for so many other things, uh, like the family itself and various other things around economics and like a microcosm of society and so on. That I think the minute you then introduce a house into these films, people can relate to them because obviously every, like most people live in a house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and... Um... Are there particular kind of um, techniques that are used? I'm thinking about the fact that my background's in television production, so I'm kind of thinking about about things that I used to work with. Um, that when they're portraying the house in this way, I mean, one of the first things I learnt when I learnt uh, when I went to university and and studied broadcast TV techniques and things like that, for example, is is the important role that sound plays. In mm. these things, uh, are there particular techniques that are common to this type of genre? I think doorways are a really important one. 
the uh, I'm thinking of a particular scene in The Woman in Black where Daniel Radcliffe's sitting uh, going through all the, the dead woman's papers and he's got the door open behind him, which no right thinking person would do. And the camera, and he's off to the side of the frame so that you can see the the doorway. But because of the fact that they haven't used deep focus, so the camera is focused on Daniel, the background's blurred. But it, it, it's it's not so blurred that you can't see that there's quite clearly a figure there. Mm. So you're just waiting for something to happen. So it's that, the this sort of use of, did I really just see that? Is that what I think that is? It's that kind of tension between what's actually there and what's not, which obviously, you know, in a low-budget film is brilliant for hiding the joint. Mm. The, um, so you get quite a lot of stuff around doorways. Jump scares are perennially favourites, and I hate them because I just think they're cheap. Then you have just things like, I know um, James Wan, when he did The Conjuring, they actually built their own version of the house, so the set was built to their specifications. And he even had, uh, according to the special features at the end, the production designer was saying that the, the corridors had to be a particular length in order to make the scares work. So you have to have enough sort of space between you and the supernatural event that you're in danger, but you're far enough away that you can try and see what's going on, but not fully grasp it. And I think that's the the bit that some of the TV programmes which will remain nameless, but are usually shot in the dark on night vision cameras, uh-huh. get wrong that they don't let you see anything. So being able to see something, at least, even if it's just like a shadow or something vague on screen, the audience fill in the blanks, so you don't need to. Yeah, and I think I think something not not in film but in television where that was particularly effective was, was um, in um, Ghost Watch. Um, oh, that was brilliant! With with the kind of figure in front of the curtains that then isn't a figure in front of the curtains when they play the tape back, and that that whole sequence, considering when that was made, and that um, you know the way that technology was being used there is is far different to how technology is used now. Um, yeah. That that was just one of the most effective parts of that whole production, I think. Yeah, and I think the other thing that. Ghost Watch sort of had in its favour was it was easy to forget you were watching a drama because these people were all like, you know, Sarah Green. You trust Sarah Green? Yeah. You know, you've grown up with her on kids' TV and um, I've forgotten his name. It's not Michael Aspel, the other one. What, that hosted it? Michael Parkinson? That's the one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a very different film if that had been Michael Aspel. Um, (laughs) Yes, it would. (laughs) Yeah. You know, again, you trust him. So you... I think the suspension of disbelief really was an awful lot higher because of the people that they'd gotten involved. You know, that would be a bit like if they tried, I mean, obviously Inside Number Nine tried to do that, but I suppose nowadays if you watch something like that and Fiona Bruce was involved, for example, you would be like, wow, this must be real because that's Fiona Bruce. Yeah. And I think, you know, but obviously if they then brought like Piers Morgan in, you would be like, hmm, maybe not. So I think it, it worked so well because it relied on um, your prior relationship with those particular characters. Yeah. So obviously, in this case, sort of famous people. I, th- I think one of the ways that Inside Number Nine's live event worked well for me, apart from the, the fact that actually it was really entertaining, um, 
because you knew what it was going to be like in in some ways before it happened because because of the nature of the people that are doing it but where it was most effective for me and and made me smile a lot was was in the aftermath of it it was just the fact that they silenced themselves on social media for so long afterwards yeah uh which, which yeah because the trouble was like go on sorry i was gonna say because i watched it after the fact so i already knew the ending yeah, so I, I I never got to enjoy that. Yeah, I I watched it live, um, and then immediately watched it again after having watched it live, um, and then just enjoyed the Twitter feed. You know, Reese Shearsmith's Twitter feed for a couple of weeks afterwards was was just a joy to behold. <laughs> No, and I think that was that was where it was most effective. Was just and and not in the fact that people were going to believe what had happened in the same way that people believed that Ghost Watch. Uh, was not a dramatization. I think it was just in in the sheer entertainment value of the whole thing. Yeah, and I think I think for me, my favorite part was when they started trying to find a backstory of like what had gone on on the site previously, and all that kind of thing. Because yes. that is the the detective element of the gothic of we need to find out what happened in the past. And it's you know when you watch a horror film and somebody goes to the library and they're looking on microfiche of it's a film from the seventies or nowadays they're on Google. And the results always like number two or three in the search results. It's that like penetrating what actually happened in the past. So it really made me chuckle that inside number nine we're like, yeah, let's just give this entire place a backstory that's completely plausible. Yeah, yeah, and and, and they did it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the their use of archive footage in doing that, I think, was was hugely effective. Yeah, I just think the whole thing was really well done. Yeah, it was. It was. So just just to wrap this up, um, just a couple of things that have come to mind while we've been talking. If we look at folklore and the way it's portrayed in horror films or in ghost stories, where is that done effectively and where is it just a bit dodgy? Um, oh, this is where I'm going to um, probably show that I'm, you know, a bit of... I'm not a film snob at all, but it's just I'm going to probably look like I'm you know being quite down on Hollywood it's fine but you've I'm... made you've made the disclaimer that you're not a snob that's good enough you can now say anything you like <laughs> but I think I understand what Hollywood are trying to do and they make entertaining films very well for the most part however whenever people ask me about interesting uh, examples or unusual examples of ghost films um, I always try to direct people to films like The Devil's Backbone by Del Toro, which obviously is a Spanish production, or indeed to the, the J-horror ones, but even just British ones. Because when I think of a film like The Awakening with Dominic West and Rebecca Hall in it, yeah, it has its moments where it's a bit hysterical, but it does some really cool things with set design and cinematography. And it's just, it's different from other films of its ilk. And I would also point to something like The Little Stranger, which only just came out last year. Oh, we watched that the other day, and it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd read the book like years ago, and um, and I recommended it to my partner because he was just interested in that period of history. So when it, it came out around about the same time as his, as his birthday, so we went to see it, and we were like, oh my god, it's like a haunted house film where it's just you've no real clue what's actually going on, um, but the sound is so good. And again, it's one of those films that uses set design to show sort of the physical degradation of the of the house, then represents 
basically that whole like top echelon of society in that economic moment it's just really really well done but in terms of the actual ghost it's just creepy and i think there hasn't been a good creepy ghost film for a really long time so i would recommend a little stranger yeah it was it was excellent um and it's a really good example of the importance of the house in 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 these sort of areas of fiction as well tracy and i after we'd watched it had a discussion about this and thinking about you know the but books where the house really is is the main character and that little stranger is a really good example along with something like manderley i suppose as well being an important house but yeah it's a really good example that yeah i think if you were looking at books as well you'd have things like house of leaves as well um or burnt offerings or something like that where the because i think most people agree that the house as a character really starts with shirley jackson so you don't have as many books to catch up on if you look at the stock of your kindle over the summer yeah absolutely um another area that comes out of this kind of cinema just as a last point that came to mind um is the idea of legend tripping and and Mm -hmm. you talked about this briefly with the blair witch project earlier on um there, there was a um a really interesting article a few years back in the folklore journal uh, which was written by Michael Coven that talks about um, Most Haunted as a TV programme, but then coming away from that, the idea of legend tripping and, and people going to sites that are represented to either try and experience what was said to happen there, or in the case of, of um, horror films, if there is kind of this mythos drawing around it. So aside from the Blair Witch Project, are there other, other examples in, from this type of... Um, cinema where where it's gone on to become strong in this kind of legend tripping landscape aspect well i think one of the things you'd have to bear in mind from what i've read i don't know if this is true they actually had to change the the number of the amityville house to stop people going to see it um i mean i'd I'd, I'd, I'd quite happily stay there because i don't think that anything actually happened but i thought it was quite interesting that so many people wanted to see the amityville house that they had to essentially give it a new identity Mm. Um, so let's take a witness protection scheme for houses. I can't immediately think of of any others because Blair Witch did it so well. I mean, obviously people are going to go and see, you know, they're going they're going to go to more obvious sites, particularly in the UK somewhere like you know Pendle Hill. They might go to or the Tower of London would be a really good option, I yeah. suppose. But I think in terms of these kind of films, because unless they've done the based on a true story thing, but then they usually obscure the house so much because it looks nothing like the original one that it would be almost impossible to go and find the original source. Um, that would be my thinking on that one. Yeah, I guess it happens more where, where it, like you say with Pendle, where, where it's a landscape, you know, a geographical uh, aspect rather than a particular distinct location that people might do that. I know, I know people do pay to stay in the, the house in Pontefract. Um, somebody that I know actually did um, and, uh, and was sending me photos of injuries that he'd sustained and unfortunately he is a, a fairly accident-prone person. But <laughs> the uh, I'd be fascinated to, to hear more from him about what actually happened Um sort of like why he was staying there but i think it it's it, it it's got to be a very specific type of location i think to 
to perhaps and obviously with films like you know Poltergeist because it's completely invented um I think people possibly are used to these places actually not really existing or only existing on a sound stage yeah 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 that, that would make sense okay that's this has been really really interesting because this this is a, a kind of a slightly less traditional aspect of folklore than some of the things that we've looked at uh, recently, which which is is really nice to talk about. Is there anything else that you want to add in just to wrap up uh, on top of what we've already discussed? I think it would just be um, if people see any of these films and are quite intrigued by the legends behind them, just like literally go and like read up on them. Because often you'll find that they're based on a true story. The true stories are a million times more interesting <laughs> than the film. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree with that as well. Uh, and I guess I would finally say as well that um, there are many many examples from from cinema around the world of these types of things, and we've only just scratched the surface in many ways. So maybe if people want to post examples in the folklore podcast discussion group of of other films that they've seen which may we may not be so familiar with uh if they're in other areas of the world um and we can we can create a brilliant watch list of of things that everybody should go and look at from this area oh that would be brilliant yeah that would be great i see thank you so much for coming on and talking about that that's absolutely brilliant if people want to find out more about you and get your uh books and your writing what should they do um probably go to my website which is www.icsedgwick.com i should point out sedgwick only has one e people insist on putting it in after the g um or you can google ic sedgwick and if you get it wrong google will actually correct you now which is nice or just come and hang out on folklore thursday and you're bound to bump into me at some point (laughs) excellent everybody should go and hang out on folklore thursday anyway regardless of whether either of us are on it or not because it is a fascinating and fantastic resource i will put a link to your website because i believe that i've spelt your name correctly in most of the things that i've done so far uh i'll put a link in uh on the uh folklore podcast website in the guest section to to all of your bits and pieces and people can go from there as well uh thank you so much be my absolute pleasure my thanks to ic sedgwick for joining me on the folklore podcast do take a look at her website to find her past blogs as well as details of her fiction titles and do if you can as we've just mentioned pop your thoughts on this topic into the folklore podcast discussion group on facebook and as usual If you want to let me know about your thoughts or experiences on the folklore discussed in this or any other episode of the podcast, then please email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and I'll be happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, 
earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.